If you've worked with students who have difficulty answering and asking questions in a conversation, this is a great episode. I talk with Lisa Chatler, who is an amazing SLP with over 40 years of experience in the field. She is based in California and she is a speech therapist, a treating speech therapist, but she also has had some really great work at ASHA and also at her state level organization there in California. She also shares a sneak peek of some work that she did with Michelle Garcia Winner when social thinking was really in its infancy. And I thought that was really fascinating to hear about all of that because Michelle Garcia Winner has had some amazing work and really impacted the field of speech pathology. So if you have students who are working on conversation-based skills and really struggling with answering and asking questions, this is a really, really great episode. And let's get started. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us on episode seven of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin, and I am here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions tomorrow to help your students with autism. Today, we have Lisa Chatler. I'm so excited that you're joining us. And I would say I usually have this little line that it's nice to virtually meet you. But me and Lisa are actually friends in real life because a couple years ago, I started going to the ASHA conferences, actually probably when it was in your neck of the woods in LA. That's probably where we met, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. So I'm so happy to have you on. And I know Lisa is very, she's a service provider. She's a speech therapist, but does a lot of work for us through ASHA. And we've gotten closer that way too. So can you tell us, Lisa, how you became passionate about helping students with autism? Was there like one moment that stands out for you or one client that kind of had an impact on you over across your career? I started, I think my first students with autism were in the early 90s, and I really didn't know a whole lot about autism at that point. When I was a student, we didn't learn about autism. It wasn't something that we as SLPs did. Obviously, it's become a very big part of what I do. So I was sort of left wondering, what do I do with this student and not a lot of resources for for learning. But I managed to do what I could for this particular young man. And as a matter of fact, I'm still friends with him and he is 40 years old now. <laughs> I know, That's right? Great. Yeah. He sends me cards on every holiday. I love it. Yeah, that is so. Well, tell everybody how, because people are not sure, you know, they don't have a video. I've met you. But how long have you been practicing as a speech therapist? Because I actually... I do a lot of training on working with students with autism, and I feel like a lot of the stuff that I talk about, I necessarily didn't learn in graduate school. So how how long have you been practicing as a speech therapist? 42 years. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure that they really didn't... When I started even just presenting about autism, the incidence rate, I remember, was 100 and 200 and, I don't know, 42 or something. And now it's maybe 1 in 54. I need to check that stat. I keep talking about it. But it's just, it really is embedded in what we do every single day as speech therapists. And that's so interesting. So you've done a lot of on-the-job training is what you're telling us. Oh, definitely. But I've also done a lot of reading and gone to many, many seminars. 
years ago in around the late 90s, Michelle Garcia Winner came to Orange County and used a group of us as, as a sounding board for the, for the work that she was doing. That was fascinating. And we got to be on the, the bottom step of her growth as a service provider, as an, an amazing educator. So I was very privileged to be a part of that, of that group. So that's how you learn. You just go from one, one book leads you to the next, one student leads you to the next. Absolutely. And that's great that you were in her beta testing or, you know, she's such yeah. a dynamic speaker and a dynamo. And I know she was based in maybe San Jose. I don't know if yes. that's right. Okay. Yeah, she still is in San Jose. She is still in San Jose. Wow, that's so cool to be able to see that because she, I think what she did such an amazing job with is obviously the the information she shares is really great about social skills and things and about so many things. But she is such a dynamic presenter and she, I can't imagine what her presenting schedule was like. I mean, she was just always presenting and she did such a good job of not only having an amazing idea, but using you like a, a team of speech therapists. Was it speech therapists that she was kind of sharing her work with and you guys Our were team. learning about it? That's And also at the social thinking providers conferences where I presented it a couple of times in the early conferences. So that was interesting. And I met people there that I'm still friends with as well. Oh, wow. That's yeah. so fascinating. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah, to be able to, because I know that she does a lot of work, but she's really good at sharing her message. And um, I know that I saw her present when I lived in Austin and it was, oh my gosh. I mean, there were hundreds of speech therapists, providers that were there, I think for a two-day conference. And it was really, really interesting to see the work that she was doing for so many people. That's why awesome. I think that really sparked my interest. It really grabbed me. It was like, oh, oh, this could really make a difference for some of these kids that are struggling with their social communication and rote learning wasn't helping them or me at all. So I found that that definitely made a difference. But over the years, of course, as I've honed what I do and social thinking isn't for every student because you've got such a range of levels in in the ASD spectrum. Yes, and that's why I'm so excited about our topic that we're going to talk about today because I think it's something that people really, really struggle with. And so what we're going to talk about is assessment intervention of students' ability to ask questions to gain information or get their needs met. And I think that's such an area of need, especially from a provider standpoint, because I know that sometimes when you're working with students potentially who have a limited ability to use language, it can be hard to know, you know, how does that comprehension piece fit in? Where do we start with all of these skills? So can you talk to us a little bit about that and like what assessments we would use to evaluate skills like that? Question asking, it just struck me so early on that what my students were doing when they asked questions in that reciprocal double interview that we did was so many kids were asking yes, no questions. And they basically made a smart guess based on the pictures that I had there about me or my life and then posed a question that I would answer either yes or no. So the, they were making some pretty good inferences, but it wasn't an efficient way to engage in a back and forth exchange in a conversation. They'd ask one yes or no question. Oh, did you go to the mountains? Yes. 
now that's a great way to start, but you now you want the child then to ask, well, where, what mountains, what did you do there? Who did you go with? Why did you go to the mountains? But they would just ask one or two yes, no questions about the, that particular photo. And then they were ready to move on to another topic because they didn't know what to do next. That's pretty inefficient. And it also, I work largely with adolescents, middle and high school, and it just didn't work for it, for interpersonal relationships. So I saw that as being problematic for them. It was definitely a place to start. So I was glad that they were doing that. Then there were other kids that that I'd worked with a while that might ask a WH question, but then they didn't know what to do with the information they were given if they even paid attention to it. Right, right. So this made it very makes it very difficult for those kids to engage in conversations that support relationships. I was just working on that with a student. I actually it might have been Michelle Garcia at Winner's book. It's called The Social Fake, but you know, we do this as adults. I mean, we pretend that we're interested in a topic and we ask questions and we could care less about what that person has to say. But we know, and I always try to frame it with my students who are at that language level that, you know, when you get a job, when you get competitive employment, you have your career that, you know, it's important. That social piece, even though you may not care what your coworker did over the weekend. And, you know, now with COVID, there's not a whole lot of change with the answer, yeah. you know, answering what did you do over the weekend. But, you know, even if you don't care, we engage in that kind of social fake behavior all the time because we know that that's just kind of part of being an adult. And I even think some adolescents now, you know, with kids that are being, you know, that are constantly on their phones or, you know, are not answering questions and talking to people in real life, that those are kind of important things to be able just to kind of bounce back. So is that, that's called a double, is that called a double interview? Is that the technique? Okay. First, I talk to the student and model what I want them to do. And that comes straight out of her book, Thinking About You, Thinking About Me, volume two, just saying. I don't get paid for saying any of this. <laughs> I just know it works. Yeah. It's, like I said, it comes straight out of her book. I model it. And then at the end of the conversation where I'm asking the student and making comments on the student's interests, I summarize it for the student. And I summarize all the different things that I remember them saying. And, I, and I'll ask them, did, did I get that right? And they were always so excited because I got that right. And I wanted them to feel that pleasure of having somebody A, pay attention and B, remember what they, what their interests are and what they said, because I wanted that to be a piece of their experience. So then when I turn it around and say, okay, now it's your turn. You can ask me anything you want to know about me. Then that's when it it sort of falls apart for them, except if they've been working on it for a while. So, and I transcribe the whole thing, which is, it's time consuming. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's, it's, there, I haven't found an easy way to capture um, a language sample like that. So were you writing it down? So just for people who may not be speech therapists, because I feel like there might be some parents and other professionals listening. So transcribe, you're meaning you're writing it down, right? Kind of verbatim-ish. Uh, what I being record said? It. You I record, record it. it. Wow. Okay. 
record the whole thing. And then um, I transcribe the whole thing. And the reason I'm not ever using an app is because I need to know where the utterance starts and where it stops. And when I'm saying something versus when they're saying something. And I haven't found an app that can do that very well. So I write it all down. It's very time consuming, but it's absolutely invaluable when it comes to giving me information. I also use it for mean length of utterance if I need to, for formulation style, for complex sentences. I use it for a lot of things. So that main transcription, so then you're using that, is that what you're using then to create present levels about how the student's doing with what different types of skills could you from that type of where you're asking the student questions and then they're asking you questions, what different types of skills, like for the speech therapist listening, would you potentially be getting those present levels type, type of information from? I also like to do narratives. And so that's not the only piece of the language sample that I required. I will do a story retell for a younger child, probably an expository retell for an older student or a summary that I might, I might do that with a, with a student or a video. I have a couple of favorite videos that are high, high interest that I have the student watch. And then I got, I will take screenshots of the video in key places so that they actually have something in front of them that can help them retell it. Oh, that's a good idea is a visual prompt. Yeah. Everybody kind of has those little go-tos. Are these on YouTube or what's one of the videos? Like what is one of the videos that you use? I'm dying. Absolute favorite one is called Bridge. Bridge. Okay. Yeah. I've heard of it. It's about a moose and a bear. Go look it up. Okay. It's awesome. Okay. Because it's so perfect. It's a perfect story grammar marker. It fits that model just perfectly. I really love it. But for older kids, we get, I'll do an expository article. And I don't necessarily read it to the student. Sometimes I'll have it, if there's a recording with it, like some of the websites have recordings. And it just depends on what their interest is. If I really want to delve a little bit further, I'll do something that I know is interesting to them and something that might they might hear in a science class or a history class or something from literature, which is lower interest and see, if, see what kind of difference that there is. That's great. Yeah, there are a lot of really good websites. I know that I've been using Newzella or some people call it NewzLA. And they're just, they're, and I don't know if that's a free website or just maybe where I work has access to it, but it's really cool because even for kids I'm seeing virtually, I can kind of highlight some text. And if they're able to read, they read some of the, the text and I read some of the text. And then we obviously go over, you know, some of the different comprehension questions. And, and so that's a really great. I love that you're talking about some of those things because I think sometimes, I I mean, just saying as a school-based therapist, sometimes we feel extremely pressured by timelines and, you know, what does make up a really great assessment that is not just the standardized assessment. You know, um, sometimes when I'm working with students, I always make sure that I'm able to observe them in the classroom setting or in the larger school environment. But I love the idea of what you're talking about because I don't know if everybody is making a note to try to get some of those snippets of more of that spontaneous language because it can give you such great information. And, you know, talking today about, you know, how a weakness in answering questions and even the ability to ask questions too is really going to impact you socially, academically, in the community. So can you speak a little bit to that? Because you did say you work with, tend to work with middle school, high school students, like having a delay in the ability to to answer different comprehension questions. Can you talk to us about like, how does that impact an individual across their kind of their day? 
We, I think that we work a lot on answering questions. And so I really wanted to keep my focus on the asking questions piece. Mm-hmm. Some years ago, I was noticing that my the resource specialists who were fantastic teachers and wonderful people were writing self-advocacy goals in on the IEPs. Student will self-advocate by asking for assistance or clarification or whatever. And the students wouldn't ever do that. No matter how much instruction and encouragement and prompting we gave them, they just weren't going to ask. It wasn't going to happen. And I started to do a little research into what that was all about and found that there's actually, there's been research on it. There's an article that I've, I've given to teachers for several years now called, Why Do Some Students Avoid Asking for Help? And an examination of the interplay among students' academic efficacy, teachers' social-emotional role, and the classroom goal structure. It's not in speech, but it is, you can get like on ResearchGate, mm-hmm. Allison Ryan, Margaret Gein, and Carol Midgley. It was just explained why they aren't going to ask for help. And when did they start not asking for help? Well, it was the first time that somebody told them to be quiet or somebody didn't help them. And these are students who are not successful in school. They don't like it there. It's just not a place they're good at. And why are they going to ask questions and draw attention to themselves? Now, having said that, there is that outlier kid whose hand is going up every three seconds. And I can tell you that kid is is in my heart and forever is in my heart. But his attention and his memory was so small and his processing was so slow that he was trying to he didn't care. He loved school and didn't care what the other people thought about him, that they were, he was driving everybody crazy because he wouldn't let the teacher finish a sentence before he was asking about it. So there is that too. Right. I love them also. Yeah. No, I know some kids like that. I love, right. I'm, I'm laughing. You guys can't see, but yeah, I know there is that kid, but they want to get all their questions answered. Absolutely. So it's interesting. So what does the article say? So how do we bridge that? Because I do, it's so funny you said that. I actually just had an IEP meeting today and I was talking about a student who used to have a goal for asking for help. And this particular student did, I think was just a little timid. Really, I don't think had that much of a language delay. The student was able to advocate for when they needed clarification with an assignment. So was that article saying that maybe students were asking for help at one point, but it didn't meet that reinforcement or they didn't get their needs met um, during that time? It really talks about the classroom goal structure, how the classroom is structured so that there is space and warmth around asking when you're when they're little so that they grow up knowing that that's part of how we are in life that's how we get information my interest of questions of course is academic as well because the students these are students that not only do they have trouble asking questions they have trouble answering questions and I'll I've had parents send me emails about their students like we spent three hours reviewing for this history test last night and the kid still failed it and he knew everything. And the thing is, I really believe the parent, but they were studying from the studying guide. They were studying from their flashcards and the teacher asked the question in a slightly different way. They're really not solid on the WH question words and what type of information is being asked for. So the uh, concept of asking questions goes way beyond social and has to do with academic as well. If the teacher is asking a question in a different way, the student's going to get it wrong, even though the student has has the knowledge. And then the student gets a low grade and it self-perpetuates that they are an unsuccessful student. Right. 
Absolutely. We, yeah, yeah, that's, we, there's a term we talk talk about teaching loosely where we wouldn't ask something the same exact way. So if I have a student and it's a different type of example, but if I had a student who is creating sentences, a simple sentence about a picture, I may show them the picture and say, what's happening? Or tell me a sentence. Can you tell me about the picture? The idea, it's a more simplistic way. It's somebody who has a different language level, but it's same idea of we can't teach exactly to the test because we're completely missing the concept of can the student answer these questions? Are they able to ask the questions? And so I understand what you're saying. And then I know a lot of students like that and they're just really, everyone's confused on why they didn't do well on that particular assignment because they did spend so much time. That's really hard. That's hard for me. It is. is, It's hard and it's heartbreaking because I see how they're improving and yet they're still not being successful. Now, having said that, the teachers in my schools, fantastic, amazing teachers who have really come a long way in learning how to accommodate for the students and support my students' success, whether they're asking questions, answering questions, or just interacting in small group learning. That's great. very grateful for their efforts. That's awesome. So how would we, if we were going to develop goals for questions, how would we, what are some tips that you would have for maybe a speech therapist who's just kind of starting out? And I know that IEP development always kind of makes me (laughs) sweaty and nervous. (laughs) what, What are some ideas that you could share with us when we are kind of creating some goals in this kind of realm of language? You know, I think one of the things that has made me so excited was the the invention of the Common Core State Standards. I could see SLPs all over the place rolling their eyes on that comment, but I really like that because it's defined my job. What is it? What are the end skills at the end of the row that we want students to be able to do in order to be successful in college and work in life? And they're spelled out if, if you go to, especially in speaking and listening, but also in, li- in reading to written language, you can see what it is we expect students to do. And then you start to break down, what is it that my student needs to do so maybe we can move them along the continuum toward that goal? I, I should have probably written those out, but I didn't. So I do apologize for that. Oh yeah, that's okay. But using that helps me focus where I want to go with the student. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I need solid baselines. No matter what I decide to do, I need a solid baseline. So for example, if my student is asking yes, no questions to confirm their smart guess, I know that they're needing WH question words in their vocabulary. They might be able to answer WH questions, but they're not asking them. So then I go right right back to being able to determine the category of information that goes with each WH question and to do it efficiently. Right, as a prerequisite or something. Yeah. That's so I might, the goal might knowledge. the student will match details with the WH question word. One of my favorite goals, and it just, you can really um, adapt this goal to a lot of kids, is using context. Now, I love, I know that context-based instruction is really what's evidence-based. So given given a short passage, because you can't, you don't have much time in a, in a session, given a short passage at the student's reading level, you can't do it at their grade level because it's way too high. And say three details drawn from that 
passage. The student will form one question per detail that can be answered by that detail. Yeah, that's hard. I know that's going to be hard for some students, but really, really good information. And those are good ideas about goals. And I love baseline data. That's very important to to have so that we can report that on the IEPs and any kind of intervention planning that you're doing. So I love that idea of, you know, this is where their student is at. These are some of the things that are going to be helpful for them. And definitely as students get older, those types of being able to have the details, being able to develop the different types of questions. I think those are all really important skills skills for students as they progress through their through their schooling. So, yeah, they have to be able to answer questions, they have to be able to ask the questions. Students don't seem to object to instruction around that either. They like getting the answers. You don't have to answer anything here. I'm going to give you all the answers. Your job is to make up the question that right. can be answered by this detail. And we start with the concrete, the who, that's the most concrete. And the where is pretty concrete. Interesting that what can be harder than you think. And we often don't ask what so much as what's happening. Right. You know, what's happening? The man is driving his car down the street. What's the man doing is a what's happening question. Mm -hmm. So we ask those. We think it's a what question, but it's really not. It's an action. Yeah. No, that's good to talk about that different. What is the hierarchy of those different types of questions? Oh, good. I love all that information about goals. Really great information. I love, I didn't know all those things about social thinking, how you were kind of in the the group for that. And you did all those presentations. That's really, really fascinating. I love this talk about, you know, asking questions and just talking about the self-advocacy piece, because I think that is such a big piece and just kind of, and I just was talking to somebody else about this, but it's not just, you know, what the speech therapist does. It's really goes back to, you know, the larger environment and making sure that teachers are involved. And it sounds like you have a really great rapport with the teachers that you're working with. And I think that's what's so important is that kind of relationship building, which kind of leads up to one of the last questions I always like to ask people on the podcast is, you know, what is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to either another professional or another parent about working with students with autism? If you could kind of give us one little highlight about your, your great career that you've had as a speech therapist, what would be one thing that you would say, gosh, I wish I would have known that back then, or, you know, something that you've gleaned and overcrossed your career? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Knowing what the student's interested in and showing interest in that is what I want to model for my kids. I've thought more recently about the, the neurodiversity movement too, and that I, I need to explore that so that where I can kind of come, I would like to be able to serve the families that are the, the, the kids that want the social thinking and that are capable of that and the ones that want to go, no, I'm, I'm, I like me just the way I am right. and to be able to support that decision as well. So that's something that I think that I don't want to impose on other people right. because I think we've done a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Kind of reflecting on our practice. I love that. And a lot of people have been talking about that. So that's really interesting that you share that. So definitely being a lifelong learner. And I love that. That's great information. Make sure to everyone check the show notes for resources that we discussed today. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. I always love hearing from you. Remember to keep things fun and functional. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. 
write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.